in from the beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along tonight as we bring you the Ultimate Sports Talk show on UltimateSportsTalk.com. Boy, have we got a lot to talk about. The NFL season gets underway. No more preseason games. Forget all that. Forget about Deflategate, although we will for about the next five minutes, and then we'll get back to that. Don't worry about all that. Some signings going on in the NFL. Roger Goodell sticking his nose into everything again. We can't get away from this guy. This guy just seems to think that he is the league, that the league doesn't exist without Roger Goodell actually being there, sticking his nose in everything that he doesn't need to be involved in. That's the way Roger Goodell governs over the NFL. We don't need Roger Goodell. That's coming up on the show, but tonight... Pittsburgh plays New England. A lot going on. The Buffalo Bills have signed somebody new. LeBron James is holding court down in Miami, and baseball is winding down. And a tennis star was assaulted by police in New York City. All of that, plus more, coming up on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. And you can check in with us via the social media. My Twitter address is at OHBBCoHost. That's OHBB co-host. Or you can send me an email to dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. Let me know what you think about what's going to happen in the NFL this year. And at the end of tonight's show, I'm going to go over all my predictions and give you who is going to win Super Bowl 50. Don't bother going out and buying the NFL Sunday ticket. You don't need it. After you listen to tonight's show, you're going to know exactly who's going to win Super Bowl 50 in February. Last year I was completely wrong on everything, but hey, that's par for the course. Nonetheless, we're going to go over it again tonight. So we've got all that coming up for you on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But first... Okay, I am absolutely positively convinced that the Cleveland Browns organization, with or without Ray Farmer, just does not have a clue as to how to build a football team. Did Jimmy Haslam learn anything in the two years he spent in the Pittsburgh Steelers organization? Obviously not. Did Ray Farmer learn anything in the Kansas City organization? Absolutely not. Bill Kuharik, did he learn anything while he was in the Dallas Cowboys organization? Absolutely not. And I am completely and utterly fed up with what is going on in Cleveland. And if I needed any more proof, it happened this afternoon. When the Browns abandoned the Terrell Pryor experiment, waving him today in the midst of his transition from quarterback to wide receiver, the Browns waved Pryor to make room on the 53-man roster for former Seattle Seahawks running back, Robert Turbin. What is the big hurry about putting Turbin on the roster? I understand they had to claim him, but is Robert Turbin going to make the Browns a Super Bowl contender? No. Is Terrell Pryor going to make the Browns a Super Bowl contender? No. Turbin was waived by Seattle after reaching an injury settlement with the Seahawks. He's 25 years old, has a high ankle sprain, and won't be ready to play for a few weeks. He played in all 16 games last year, and in the past three seasons, as a matter of fact, he had 74 carries, 
310 yards for a 4.2-yard average. Why in the world did they even keep Pryor on the roster, the 53-man roster, if they weren't going to keep him? And why in the world did they go out and get this Turban character when he's not going to be ready to play in a few weeks? You could go out and get a good running back like Ray Rice, whom, again, I'm convinced there's a collusion thing going on with the owners that Ray Rice is not allowed back in the NFL, and I think it all stems back to the commissioner, and I'll get into some of that here in just a little bit. But the Browns have proven they don't know how to get a winning organization off the ground. This is absolutely stupid. Why keep Pryor on the 53-man roster when it had to be made up last Saturday if all you're going to do is cut him to get another running back? Duke Johnson was a sixth-round pick by the Browns. Why is it so imperative that they have Duke Johnson? This signing here makes me think that there is no way Duke Johnson is going to be ready to play anytime soon. He may play Sunday, but that kid, the reason I didn't like him coming out of the University of Miami, is he's injury-prone. And here we are again, concussion and hamstring injury. Sean Drones, backup running back. Isaiah Crowell, the number one running back. Terrence, Terrence West traded to Tennessee. Suddenly, the strength of this team has become one of the major weaknesses, and that is a constant with this Cleveland Browns organization. It doesn't matter if Ray Farmer is in suspension or out of suspension. It doesn't matter. Now, are the Browns going to actually sign Monty Ball? That's another good question. That's expected to happen. But now with this revelation, who knows? This is an organization in turmoil that seems to be battling with itself, and it stems all the way to the top with Jimmy Haslam. He's only been an owner for three years. He's already on his second coach, on his second offensive coordinator, on his second GM. This guy doesn't seem to be able to run a successful organization. Not at all. And I'm tired of the Browns and their mucking up of everything that has to be done. We'll take a look at the Jets game coming up in just a little bit. A team that seems to know what's going on is the Buffalo Bills. Marcel Darius has signed a six-year contract extension with the team. Adam Schefter of ESPN puts the total value of the deal at $108 million, or about $18 million a year. That would put him in the upper echelon of defensive lineman contracts ahead of the six-year, $100 million deal J.J. Watt signed with the Texans and about a million dollars a year shy of the six-year, $114 million contract Ndamukong Sue signed with the Dolphins. According to Schefter, Darius will get $60 million of that guaranteed, which is the most any non-quarterback has ever been guaranteed on an NFL contract. So this means that the Bills are betting their franchise that Darius is the guy they want to build their defense around for the next six years. In another signing today, the Carolina Panthers, when they picked up Luke Keekley's fifth-year option in April, it was expected that a massive contract extension would eventually follow. Keekley, who ranks 14th on the NFL Network's Top 100 Players for 2015, has accumulated 473 tackles during his tenure in Carolina, and he signed a massive extension today to stay in Carolina, five years, $62 million. Well, there isn't much precedent for punishment of teammates 
who fight each other in the locker room. It's gone on. It's a time-honored tradition in the NFL. It's a time-honored tradition in college football. Players fight. They get into fights on the field. They get into fights in the locker room. It's taken care of. They go forward. If there's still a problem, one guy gets traded or released, and the rest of it is history. Well, not any longer. Roger Goodell, you see, again, is sticking his nose into a place where he really doesn't belong. Buffalo Bills pass rusher I.K. Kamali was given at least a four-game suspension and has appealed it. Now, this suspension could be for as many as six games. Now, why? Well, remember when he was a member of the New York Jets? He broke Geno Smith's jaw with a punch. Kamali was cut immediately by the Jets. He was picked up by Buffalo and was cut by the Bills after preseason and added to their practice squad. The NFL is citing a violation of the personal conduct policy in suspending Kampali. Whatever. You know, this is just another case of Roger Goodell, again, as I said at the top of the show and just a few seconds ago, sticking his nose in some place that it doesn't belong. Why don't they look into what Geno Smith actually had to say and actually did to prompt the punch that Enum Kampali threw at him? Nonetheless, that's what's going on. Well, the NFL is beginning, and tonight there's a big game between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the New England Patriots. Boy, that one should be a good one. Boy, that one should be a good one. It's going to kick off at 8 o'clock in Gillette Stadium in New England, and that game is going to pit two playoff teams from a year ago. Now, I'm going to go over my predictions later on in the show. I think the Steelers are on the way down. The Patriots probably going to level off a little bit. Nonetheless, the Patriots are the defending Super Bowl champs, and as you know, Tom Brady will be playing tonight. CBS Sports' Boomer Esiason and Craig Carton preview tonight's game, and Esiason says... It is going to be nuts at Gillette Stadium in an hour. It's going to be nuts. And, you know, with NBC carrying it nationally, there's going to be all sorts of signage, I would imagine, right? Yep. Uh, You know, uh, vindicated everything else in returns of Tom Brady. And then, you know, I'm thinking about this from a Pittsburgh Steelers standpoint as well. Uh, I've been in, in, in underdog situations where you go in and obviously the story is not about your team. It's about the other team. It's about the other quarterback. And in this, and in this case, the, you know, the most popular player in the league, right? Yeah. So I, I think you got to really, you know, an opportunity here if you're Pittsburgh. I really do. Even though Le'Veon Bell is not playing. Which is a big loss. Obviously. And neither is Martavis Bryant. He's one of their three, uh, terrific wide receivers. He was a rookie last year and he burst on the scene in a Monday night game. And right. They really do have one of the best offenses in the league when they have everybody on the field. They're also missing their all-pro starting center, Marquise Pouncey, to an ankle injury. So they are going in, uh, you know, shortchanged. And the other aspect, too, remember, Dick LeBeau is no longer there as the offense, uh, d- defensive coordinator for the right, Steelers. Which is a significant change. Right, significant change. They have questions on their defensive line and in their secondary. But I was thinking about this as well the other day. All right, Tom Brady comes in with Julian Edelman and Rob Gronkowski. 
Okay. And terrific football players. Yep. Nobody's doubting who they are as players. For sure. Uh, Gronkowski, you know, he, if he continues to do what he's doing, he will be a Hall of Famer. I don't know if guys like Julian Edelman ever get serious consideration simply because of their quarterback stature and because of, you know, they're not, you know, they're not big, tall, strong wide receivers that are going to go on and have 12 year careers where they have 100 catches a year. You know what I'm saying? True. But he is a terrific, terrific football player. But, you know, they've lost Shane Vereen, Darrell Revis, Brandon Browner, Vince Wilfork. They have their share of losses They've always seem to be able well. to overcome every veteran they cut. There's a new guy, and, and whether you know the new guy's name or not, they seem to always kill it. Right. Their, their defense, however, their defensive front, their front seven, uh, will be about as fast and as active as there is in the NFL. And that's why the AFC East is going to be so difficult because of all these defenses that now have rebuilt themselves. The rest of the NFL schedule will begin on Sunday. And here's a look at what's going to happen. The Cleveland Browns will be in New York to take on the New York Jets. This is going to be the honor of the Sunday. Neither team has a quarterback. Neither team has a running attack. Neither team has any receivers that can do anything. This should be one of those games that you just put on the screen with no announcers and you just form your own opinion. The Browns, I think, are going to be one of the worst teams in the NFL this year. The Jets aren't going to be much better. But let's find out what a lot of other people think other than me. CBS Sports Pete Prisco, Brady Quinn, and Pat Kerwin preview the Browns-Jets game. Kerwin was at the Jets camp a couple of weeks ago, and he just loves their defensive line. Uh, My friend Leonard Williams, he was unstoppable at practice, and now it's Sheldon Richardson out. Uh, Leonard is going to take front stage here, and I think he's going to have a tremendous game. And I know that the Cleveland Browns have a good line. Look for Leonard to start his campaign for Rookie of the Year. And then Ryan Fitzpatrick. Turnovers, man. I like the guy. He's the best quarterback in the game. But he has 121 turnovers in uh, a lot less games called 89 games. So reduce the turnovers. And he's got good weapons. Reduce the turnovers. And someone better block Leonard or you're in trouble. My man, the helium balloon, Ryan Fitzpatrick, by the way. That's my nickname for him. And Brady, you have a key for the Browns, not the quarterback position or a wide receiver somewhere else. Yeah, well, this actually affects the quarterback position, and it's really the Browns' offensive line. I mean, Pat, you just talked about it. This is a tough New York Jets defensive line they're going up against, in particular Leonard Williams. So what, what do the Browns need to do? Well, they need to protect Josh McCown. And that's going to be the difference between Josh McCown being that Josh McCown we, we saw in Chicago in 2013, where he had the great... Great touchdown interception ratio, the great win-loss record, and then you go back to last year in 2014 with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Josh McCown didn't have any protection, he didn't have any running game, and all of a sudden they end up being a 2-14 and uh, team, and, and on, on top of that he had a tough time really statistically, and it had a lot to do with the offensive line. So in this game, if the Browns want Josh McCown to be effective, they got to be able to protect him, and they got to be able to run the football against a tough New York Jets defensive front. And my key defensively for the Browns is a rookie, Danny Shelton. The guy has been phenomenal in the preseason. I mean, big, wide body. Has to go about 350. I don't care what he's listed at. And Nick Mangold's going to be a good center. He's going to be blocking him in a lot of one-on-one situations. It'll be interesting to see who wins that battle. And if the Jets want to run the football, Nick Mangold better get the better of Danny Shelton. So it's going to be interesting. But let's see our picks. Again, we differ. We differ again. You guys, what is going on here? (laughs) 
It's all over, Pete. Yeah, I, I picked the partner. Browns. I picked the Browns in an upset 18-17. I don't love the pick, but I don't think the Jets are very good either. Brady, you picked the Jets 20-13, to and Pat picked the Jets 17-13 in, in what I call the dog quarterback game of the week. Low scoring, Brady. I see low scoring game, but um, the weapons that the Jets have and guys like Brandon Marshall just a little better than what Cleveland's got. Yeah, I think instead of calling this a, a preview matchup for, for these two teams, we should call it uh, how not to play quarterback. Oh, the gosh. Week. Look, that? look, when it comes down to it, you know, this will be a defensive game, but I think the New York Jets just have more experience when you compare them to the overall roster in the Cleveland Browns. I think that's going to pay off dividends. We talked about the matchup between Danny Shelton and Nick Mangold. Mangold's a pro bowler. He's been in the league for a long time. I think he'll be able to handle Danny Shelton. Uh, and really, when you're talking about the quarterback position, too, I think Ryan Fitzpatrick just has more weapons out around him. I think it's going to play to his benefit in this game. And even though it'll be tight, I still think the Jets will come away with the win. That Browns-Jets game is going to be on CBS. That's a 1 o'clock game. The rest of the 1 o'clock games on Sunday have the Packers at the Bears at 1 o'clock on Fox. I'm taking the Packers to win that game. It's also Kansas City at Houston to take on the Texans. As much as I love Houston, I'm going with the Chiefs in this game. That's on CBS at 1 o'clock also. It will be the Colts at Buffalo taking on the Bills. I love the Bills too, but I'm going with the Colts. That's a 1 o'clock game on CBS. And the final one, or I should say, the final game on CBS on Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock is Miami at Washington. I've got to go with the Dolphins on that in that one. So out of the first five games on CBS coming up on Sunday, I've got four of the visiting teams winning except for the Browns. The Jets will win that one at home. Elsewhere, there's two more 1 o'clock games. Carolina will be in Jacksonville. I've got Carolina winning that one at 1 o'clock on Fox. And Seattle is in St. Louis to take on the Rams. I've got Seattle winning that one also. That one's on Fox at 1 o'clock. Now the 4 o'clock games. At 4.05, New Orleans is in Arizona to take on the Cardinals. Got to go with the Cardinals in that one. And also on Fox at 4.05, the Lions will be in San Diego taking on the Chargers. And I pick the Chargers to win that game. At 4.25, on CBS, three games. The Titans will be at Tampa Bay taking on Jameis Winston and the Buccaneers. And that will be a matchup with Marcus Mariota. I think Tennessee will end up winning this one behind Mariota. Cincinnati will be in Los Angeles. Well, wait, that's Oakland. Next year, it will be Los Angeles taking on the Raiders. I've got Cincinnati winning that ball game at 425 on CBS. And the final 425 game on CBS, Baltimore is in Denver taking on the Broncos. Going with the Broncos to win that one. The 8.30 game on NBC Sunday night, the New York Giants will be in Dallas taking on the Cowboys. I've got the Cowboys winning that one. And remember, this is the opening weekend of the NFL season. There are two games on Monday night to open up the season at 7.10 on ESPN. The Eagles will be in Atlanta taking on the Falcons. I've got the Eagles to win that one. And then the late game, Minnesota travels to San Francisco to take on the Vikings, or the 49ers, I should say, and I've got the Vikings winning that one. That one will kick off at 10:20. Elsewhere around the NFL, well, as we've said, Commissioner Roger Goodell consistently sticks his nose in where he thinks it belongs, but actually would be better off where it doesn't belong. He appeared Tuesday on ESPN's Mike and Mike show, where the host just asked lobball questions, as ESPN does to the commissioner, so he looks good. But again, the commish cannot get through anything without looking like a complete moron. And that happened when they asked him about the two New England Patriot employees who the Pats, under the supervision from the league, suspended in the wake of Deflategate. 
Equipment personnel John Jastrzemski and Jim McNally have been suspended for their alleged role in Deflategate since May. This according to ESPN's Adam Schefter, who cited sources suggesting the league asked the Pats to suspend the two employees and the team obliged. That was before they were stabbed in the back by Roger Goodell. Both sides say the NFL must approve Jastrzemski and McNally's reinstatement before they can resume their duties, and the Patriots have requested the league do just that. New England asked the NFL to restate them on Monday, but during the interview on Tuesday, Goodell said it hasn't happened. Have you ever seen somebody who just has no idea what's going on in their own office as much as Goodell does? Well, then later later on, NFL Executive Vice President of Football Operations, Troy Vincent, claimed the Patriots had not contacted the league regarding the two, but the Patriots said, yes, we have. Now, given the league's stance that Jastrzemski and McNally orchestrated the deflation of footballs at Brady's request, it's hard to imagine the NFL allowing the reinstatement of them, but stranger things have happened throughout this entire affair. And I would think that Jastrzemski and McNally, the way that the judge ruled last week in favor of Tom Brady and just totally against the NFL, would have a pretty good lawsuit of their own if they wanted to bring it. Goodell also said he is willing to lessen his role in the player discipline process, but is still reluctant to give up final say. Goodell said the league resists third-party arbitration. Well, let's put it this way. Goodell resists third-party arbitration. The Players Union wants disciplinary power now held by Goodell to be handled by a neutral arbitrator. Goodell said he's open to changing the role and called it extremely time-consuming, adding he has discussed this matter with several owners over the past couple of years. Well, if it's so time-consuming, Mr. Commissioner, why didn't you give up the arbitration in the Brady case to a neutral party? There are too many things that Goodell always says that just don't ever add up. I hate to say that he's telling untruths, but maybe Goodell just has selective memory. I don't know. But Goodell has indicated any change would come within the initial discipline process, not with the way appeals are handled. He wants total control over that. And he has spoken to Union Chief DeMaurice Smith before Brady's decision came down about making changes to the collective bargaining agreement where this comes from. Well, with Deflategate out of the way for the time being, Spygate has returned following a published report of new allegations regarding secret videotaping nearly eight years ago. Of course, this report came out on ESPN, which includes many interviews with anonymous sources, including allegations that league owners were upset at the way the Patriots were punished for admitting videotaping other teams' hand signals. New England said in a statement that it had never filmed or recorded another team's practice or walkthrough. It also criticized the reporting on Spygate over the years. One unnamed owner told ESPN the punishment that Goodell insisted on for the deflated football scandal was really a makeup call on Spygate. Please, somebody explain to me how Spygate actually helped New England win two Super Bowls prior to this last one. I just don't get it.
Well, how did you like game one on Monday night against Virginia Tech? The good news for Ohio State fans was it was the first game of the season. The bad news for Ohio State opponents, it was the first game of the college football season. Cardell Jones ended up starting the game for the Buckeyes, which really wasn't a surprise. If you sit back and you think about it, J.T. Barrett's ankle may still not have been fully healed, and I don't think that Urban Meyer wanted to put J.T. Barrett in a situation that he was put in a year ago. His first game back going up against that Bear defense of the Hokies in Blacksburg, Virginia, I think he just decided to go with Cardell Jones. Besides the fact that Cardell Jones is probably going to the NFL. He's a junior. He's probably going to the NFL after this year. JT Barrett is just a sophomore. He's got two years left with the Buckeyes if he chooses to stick around. So I think it just makes sense that Cardell Jones starts. But what about Braxton Miller, for crying out loud? He looked absolutely fantastic in his first game as an H-back. He ran the ball out of the Wildcat. What a spin move. He put on the Hokies' defense out of that Wildcat, running for a touchdown. The first catch that he made was a diving catch. John Solomon reports on just what Braxton Miller's performance did for his NFL stock on Monday night. By now, you've seen Braxton Miller's incredible spin-move touchdown run Monday night against Virginia Tech. But that's not the play that stood out to NFL scouts. What they're looking at was a first-half catch Braxton Miller made his first reception since moving over from quarterback. Miller laid out and made a tremendous diving catch with his fingertips. I talked to Phil Savage, the former Cleveland Browns general manager, and he said that's the play that's opened eyes of NFL scouts. They already knew that he could run and was athletic. They didn't know he could catch the ball like that. And Phil Savage says that's the type of play that has NFL scouts thinking maybe Braxton Miller could be a starting wide receiver in the NFL. Savage compares him to Antoine Randall and Heinz Ward. Those are other former college quarterbacks who had pretty good NFL careers as wide receivers. Now, Ohio State's quarterback situation was incredibly complicated, so somebody had to move. Braxton Miller was the one who made the move, and it's going to help Ohio State tremendously on offense this season. It's a Percy Harvin-type weapon for the Buckeyes. But Miller's move also could really pay off for him down the road. It's quite possible we could see Braxton Miller as a starting wide receiver in the NFL one day. And did he look slimmer than what he did when he played quarterback? He just looked smaller. But boy, does he still have that accelerated speed. And he's only going to get better as far as that's concerned. But, of course, the Cleveland Brown fans, they're all excited about Cardell Jones. He comes from Cleveland, from Glenville. And now the Browns fans have started campaigning for the Browns to stink this year. Basically what they're calling it on Twitter is hashtag fail for Cardale, which is kind of an interesting hashtag. And that started making the rounds. 24 hours later, 48 hours later, it's still going strong. I think Cardale Jones is the premier quarterback coming out in the draft this year. Now, he hasn't said he's coming out. He's got one more year of eligibility left with the Buckeyes. He could come back next year and play in Columbus if he wanted to. But my guess is is that if the Buckeyes have a successful year, Cardell Jones will come out and enter the NFL draft. It had to go through his mind. As much as he denied it, it had to go through his mind 
to stick around and stay in the NFL draft to get into it last year after winning the national championship. He said he didn't. It had to pass through his mind to give it some thought. I would love to see this guy as the quarterback of the Browns. He's a tree in the backfield. He's as big as some of the defensive linemen that he goes up against. And he's got a rocket for a gun, for an arm. He can put the ball where he wants to. He can put it there effectively. It's an easy ball for the wide receivers to catch. And he can also scramble. He's elusive. He's not fast, but he is elusive. I would love to see Cardell Jones as quarterback of the Cleveland Browns. I'm going to jump on the bandwagon. Fact of the matter is, I would love to see Cardell Jones, the quarterback of the Browns. Now, I think who the Browns have, as far as Johnny Manziel is concerned, is the backup, which is a joke. Cardell Jones is just as good right now, probably a lot better than Johnny Manziel. So what do the Buckeyes have? Well, coming up on Saturday, it'll be their first home game, and they are going to be taking on Norm Chow's Hawaii Rainbows. That's going to be Saturday in the horseshoe. The Buckeyes are favored by 40 points in this game. They're still the number one ranked team in the country. It will be on the Big Ten Network, and it will begin at 3.30. After their big loss Saturday at Notre Dame, new head football coach Charlie Strong of the Texas Longhorns has been feeling the pressure from big-time alumni and fans. Could he really be in trouble after just one game? Well, Dennis Dodd reports. This is Texas, and Texas does a lot of strange things. Saturday night at Notre Dame, Charlie Strong's Longhorns got blown out 38-3. There wasn't a facilities expansion big enough that Notre Dame could build that Texas could get blown out of. Now we have to wonder, what's in the future? Texas looked inept against the Irish. 14 games into his tenure, Charlie Strong is 6-8. Now there's reason to believe things will get better, but not anytime soon. TCU and Baylor own the Big 12 right now. That's news to Oklahoma, too. They should be paying attention. There's a quarterback issue. I mentioned that 6-8 and eight record through 14 games. In the last two games, separated by about eight months, Texas has put up less than 300 yards in total offense going back to the bowl game. And we should remember that at Louisville, he started 9-10 and 10 through his first 19 games. So Charlie Strong will get a chance. But people are nervous at Texas, and that may include A.D. Steve Patterson. Patterson has an itchy trigger finger. He's shown to have that in the past. But if there's any guy that deserves a chance, any coach who's a greater man that deserves a chance, it's Charlie Strong. Let's take a look at the rest of the top 25 college football schedule for week two. On Friday night, tomorrow night at 9 o'clock on ESPN2, it's the backyard battle between the Utah Utes, number 24 in the country, and Utah State. Utah is the team that's favored in this game by 13.5 points. Now, the rest of the day on Saturday. Number 11, Florida State, will entertain South Florida. That's at 11.30 on ESPN. Jacksonville State travels to number 6, Auburn. That's at noon on the SEC Network. Georgia Tech will host Tulane. Georgia Tech is number 15. That'll be on ESPN 3 at 3.30. At 12.30, number 12, Clemson on ESPN 3 will be entertaining Appalachian State. Also around college football in the top 25, it will be Notre Dame, number 9 in the country, traveling to Virginia. Notre Dame 1-0, Virginia 0-1. That game's on ABC at 3.30. 
Fresno State goes to number 17 Ole Miss for a 3.30 start. It will be Stephen F. Austin at number 3 TCU. That will be on Fox Sports 1 at 3.30. Elsewhere around the country in college football, it is number 10 Georgia traveling to Vanderbilt. That is a 3.30 start on CBS Sports. On the SEC Network, Middle Tennessee will be at number 2 Alabama. And that will be at 3.30 on the SEC Network. At 4 o'clock on the SEC Network, Toledo will be at Arkansas, taking on Brian Bielema and the Razorbacks. They're number 18 in the country. At 6 o'clock on ESPN, number 19, Oklahoma, goes to number 23, Tennessee. That's on ESPN, and Tennessee is a one-point favorite. Number 21, Missouri, goes to Arkansas State. That's at 7 o'clock on ESPN3. On ESPNU at 7 o'clock, Ball State will be at number 16, Texas A&M. Number 22, Arizona, goes to Nevada. That's at 7 o'clock on the CBS Sports Network. Lamar goes to Baylor. They're ranked fourth in the country this week. That's at 7 o'clock. On ABC at 8 o'clock, number 7, Oregon will play number 5, Michigan State. That's at 8 o'clock on ABC. On the Pac-10 Network at 8 o'clock, Idaho will be at number 8, Southern California. On ESPN at 9.15, number 14, LSU travels to number 25, Mississippi State. At 10.15 on ESPN2, number 20, Boise State will be at unranked Brigham Young. Brigham Young coming off of that Hail Mary victory from a week ago. And the final game in the top 25, it will be at 10.30 on CBS Sports. Number 13, UCLA, will be at UNLV. UCLA 1-0, UNLV is 0-1 on the year. And that's a look at the top 25 college football schedule for this week. Should be a fun one coming up around the country this weekend. In high school football, well, by now you've probably seen the video in which two players deliberately targeted a referee in the Texas high school football game. It was an ugly sight. And on Wednesday, one of the assistant coaches was suspended, and legal action could be pending. Two players from John Jay High School, senior Mike Moreno and sophomore Victor Rojas, deliberately hit back judge Robert Watts in the closing minutes of a game against Marble Falls. It was supposedly in response for two John Jay players who were ejected after throwing punches. An investigation by the Northside Independent School District resulted in the suspension of assistant coach Mac Breed for allegedly saying, that guy needs to pay for cheating us, referring to the ref. Watts is a 14-year refereeing veteran and says he's considering his own legal options. Local police are collecting findings to present to the Burnett County prosecutor who will determine whether to proceed with charges against the players. Lots of things going on around Major League Baseball this week. There's going to be some big, big games coming up on the horizon as Major League Baseball is winding down and teams are getting their ducks in a row for the 2016 season. And one of those teams that is doing that announced today, that's the Philadelphia Phillies. Well, Ruben Amaro Jr.'s polarizing tenure as the Phillies GM is over. And could Walt Jockety with the Cincinnati Reds be close behind? 
The Phillies announced on Twitter today that Amaro's contract would not be renewed and he would cease his control over baseball operations immediately. Assistant GM Scott Profrock will take over for the remainder of the year as the interim GM. Amaro, who's 50 years old, has been a member of the Phillies front office since his playing days career ended in 1998. He served the role of assistant GM from 1998 through 2008, first under Ed Wade and then under Pat Gillick, who retired after the club's 2008 World Series championship. But now Gillick is back as the team's president. Under Amaro's guidance, Philadelphia made the playoffs in each of the first three years, including a return to the World Series in 2009, and fans voted him the MLB's Executive of the Year during that campaign, and it appeared he was making a seamless transition. But then age and high contracts attacked the Phillies like the plague. They got progressively worse and worse and worse, and it resulted in unceremonious exits for Jimmy Rollins, Chase Utley, and Cole Hamels. So Ruben Amaro Jr. out as GM of the Philadelphia Phillies. Some sad news out of baseball this week. Joaquin Andujar, a former major league pitcher with the St. Louis Cardinals, the Houston Astros, and Oakland A's, died Tuesday at the age of 62 after a long battle with diabetes. Andujar didn't just come to the U.S. to follow his dreams. He made them come true by pitching in the World Series twice in 82 and 85 with the Cardinals. He was an all-star four times. He won 20 games in back-to-back seasons, which was 84 and 85. But he'll also be remembered for his fiery personality. I remember this like it was yesterday. They'll recall Andujar pitching in Game 7 of the 85 World Series for the Cardinals, who were getting blown out in the seventh inning. Andujar charged umpire Don Dakinger twice amid an argument about the strike zone. Dankinger had been in the middle of a controversy after a missed call on Game 6 to help the Royals win that game when the Cardinals appeared to have the World Series wrapped up. Andujar was ejected, so was manager Whitey Herzog. But then earlier in 1982, Andujar won two games for the Cardinals in that World Series and three in the entire postseason as St. Louis won the World Championship. Giants pitcher Tim Hudson says... He's done. After Tuesday night's game, the righty said he plans to retire at the conclusion of the year. The 40-year-old pitched six effective innings in his return to the San Francisco Giants rotation and hit his first homer of this year, lifting the team to a 6-2 win. Hudson, who's now 7-8, and eight, was called on to start on short notice after Ryan Vogelsong pitched in relief the night before. Hudson had yet to be stretched out since coming off the DL on September 1st and pitched no more than two innings. The right-hander had no trouble with the extra work as he spotted his pitches while allowing a run on four hits in his first start since July 26th. Hudson is in his 17th year, his second with the Giants. He previously spent six years with the Oakland A's and nine with the Atlanta Braves, and he has won 221 games, and that ranks first among active pitchers. Well, let's take a look at the standings as we round out the Major League Baseball season. and Pretty much all the divisions are wrapped up. The only thing left to decide are wild card races. St. Louis has got a four and a half game lead over Pittsburgh in the National League Central, seven and a half over the Cubs. 
in the National League East. The New York Mets swept the Washington Nationals this week, three-game series in Washington. So now the Nationals are seven games out behind the Mets. The amazing Mets are going to win that National League East. And in the National League West, the Dodgers are leading by eight and a half games over the San Francisco Giants. In the American League East, Toronto, this is really the only division in the American League that has a race behind it, too. Well, I guess the West does somewhat. Toronto is leading the New York Yankees by a game and a half and by 11 over Tampa Bay. And in the West, Houston leads by two games over Texas and five and a half games over the Angels. In the Central, Kansas City's running away with it. They've got an 11-game lead over Minnesota, and they have got a 14-and-a-half game lead over the Cleveland Indians, who are now in third place. In the wild-card races, well, Pittsburgh and Chicago seem to have them wrapped up in the National League. Chicago, the second wild-card team, is nine games up on San Francisco. In the American League, the Yankees have the top spot in the wild-card race. Texas, the second team. But Minnesota's a game-and-a-half back. The Angels are three-and-a-half back. Then comes Cleveland at five back. And a couple of series this weekend that are going on that are going to affect the playoff chase. Toronto is at New York to take on the Yankees. That's a battle for first place in the American League East. And Houston will be playing the Angels. This is really the last gasp for the Angels. They need to win these games this weekend at home against Houston to try to get back into the American League West division race. LeBron James is getting ready for a championship run. The Cavs were two wins away from an NBA title one year ago. And LeBron James is trying to get his teammates together to get ready for a championship run this season. He's been rehabbing with teammate Kyrie Irving in South Florida as they're both preparing for training camp, which will begin at the end of this month. And now he's bringing down the rest of his Cavs teammates, and that includes... Anderson Varejia, who's recovering from a torn Achilles, Kevin Love, who's recovering from shoulder surgery, Timofey Mozgov, who's recovering from knee surgery, and Tristan Thompson, who's trying to recover from the public relations nightmare that his contract is causing with Cavalier fans. And because of that, the Cavaliers have gone ahead and signed center Sasha Khan to a contract. Now, per league and team policy, terms of that contract are not released. He's a 6'11", 250-pounder. He's a center who spent the last year, six years, playing over in Russia. In other sports to round out tonight's show, on the 11th day of the U.S. Open, rain has postponed the women's semifinals, according to the United States Tennis Association in the U.S. Open. They'll be playing now starting tomorrow morning instead of on Thursday. Serena Williams, the number one seed, she's heading for that calendar year Grand Slam. Well, she's going to face off against Roberta Vinci of Italy. That will be at 11 a.m. on tomorrow morning. The other semifinal has number two, Simona Halep of Romania against Italy's Flavia Panetta, the number 26 seed, and that will be following that Serena Williams matchup. James Blake, a former tennis star, once ranked fourth in the world, was thrown to the ground and arrested by the New York City Police Department in a case of mistaken identity. The officers involved in the improper arrest are now under investigation, and Blake is asking for an apology. 
Blake was standing outside the Grand Hyatt Hotel in New York City prior to the U.S. Open when five officers approached him, threw him to the ground, and cuffed him. One officer told Blake, don't say a word. Blake was only released when a former police officer who was working security at the hotel recognized him and convinced the officers to turn him loose. Police arrested Blake because he was misidentified in connection with a credit card scam. An individual standing next to Blake was arrested at the same time. Floyd Mayweather launched a fierce defense Wednesday of his career and decision to face Andre Berto three days ahead of the welterweight world championship fight on Saturday. The American title holder goes into about a perfect 48-0 and and will equal the record of legendary heavyweight Rocky Marciano if, as widely as expected, he sends Berto packing. Well, Mayweather insists this will be the last fight of his career. I don't believe him. Nobody really believes him. And he's faced criticism from fight fans who say he's ducking some of the best in the weight division and cherry-picking Berto, who's a massive underdog. Mayweather's critics accuse him of attempting to drum up badly needed interest by declaring Saturday his swan song. Now, the pay-per-view event is absolutely atrocious. Nobody wants to buy it. There are so far... 2,100 tickets still available at the MGN Grand. That was as of yesterday. And the fight is so under the radar that one prominent boxing insider admitted he had forgotten it's even taking place on Saturday. If you want to get the pay-per-view, I don't even think it's available on Dish Network. DirecTV is offering it for $75. But after what people shelled out for the Mayweather-Pacquiao back in May for $100, nobody is buying this fight of Floyd Mayweather's. Well, with no more further ado, let's get into our 2015 NFL predictions. The season will begin tonight. Pittsburgh will be in New England taking on the Patriots. And the one prediction that I think is a slam dunk is the fact that if there is any more controversy coming out of the NFL front office and Commissioner Roger Goodell, the owners are finally going to throw their hands up in the air and say, the hell with this, and Goodell will be gone. That is my prediction. One more controversy like Spygate, Deflategate, whatever. I don't think they care. One more controversy and Roger Goodell is gone. But let's move forward with the predictions. and Let's start out in the AFC this year because we started out in the NFC last year. How do I know that? Because I went back and listened to the tape. Well, let's take a look at the AFC. In the Eastern Division, I've got the New England Patriots winning that division. That is pretty easy to figure out. The Pat- Patriots are the best team in the division by far. It wouldn't have mattered if Tom Brady had set out the first four games or not. The Pats were going to win that division. Now, Rex Reed, though, has got the Buffalo Bills thinking that they can actually win this thing, as he did with the first couple of years with the New York Jets. The Bills are going to be a surprise team. I don't think the Bills are good enough to win the division. They may contend for a playoff spot, but the Pats win the East. In the North, this one is a tough one. I battled back and forth between this one, between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Baltimore Ravens. I hate the Ravens, as everyone knows. I think this is going to be a down year for Pittsburgh. But nonetheless, I'm going to take the Bengals just because I've got this feeling in the pit of my stomach that the Bengals are just a little bit better team than Baltimore is. 
Baltimore's defense is a little bit suspect. Their offensive line is getting older and older. And I just get the impression that Cincinnati is ready to make a push and win a couple of playoff games. So I've got the Bengals winning the North. In the South, it is the Indianapolis Colts. That's an easy pick. The Colts behind Andrew Luck. They've got Frank Gore running back now, so they're much more impressive at the running back position. They've got some good receivers that are coming out, so those should be some good pickups for the Indianapolis Colts. But when you have got a quarterback the caliber of Andrew Luck, you are going to be in every football game. And I've got the Colts winning the Southern Division. A team that's going to push them, though, that I'm impressed with, is Houston. Houston is going to be a very, very tough team to beat this year. They may not win the division, they may not make the playoffs, but the Texans are going to be a very good team this year. Why? Because they've got, finally, some consistently good quarterback play. Brian Hoyer will bring them the leader that they have needed on offense for several years. He may not win them many ball games, but he doesn't have to. He's just got to manage the game the way Bill O'Brien wants it managed, and they're going to lean on that defense with Cushing at the linebacker position, J.J. Watt and Jadavian Clowney on the defensive line. Man, when you look at that defense, they are going to be hard to beat. So I've got Houston really pushing the Colts. Same way as I've got the Bills. I think they're going to be a surprise team but I don't think that they'll make the playoffs. And finally, out west, I've got the Denver Broncos winning that division. Now, certainly the change in coaches and the change in philosophy is going to hinder the Broncos for the first few games, but I think sooner or later Peyton Manning is going to get a handle on it. He's going to move forward, and this Denver team is really going to take off. Kansas City, though, they are an imposing team. Andy Reid has got this team really believing in itself. They have got some great offensive and defensive talent, and I think the Chiefs are going to push Denver this year for that title. This may be the toughest division in football with the Chargers and the Raiders. I think the Raiders are going to be extremely improved this year, and I think the Chargers are another team that is going to be very, very good this season. That being said, I expect Denver to win that division and Kansas City. To finish in second. My wild card teams, after I've got the Patriots, Bengals, Colts, and Denver in the playoffs in the AFC, I've got Kansas City as the top wild card and Baltimore as the second wild card team. While I'm at it, who do I think is going to be the worst team in the AFC? I don't think there's any doubt. I really believe the Cleveland Browns are going to be the worst team in the AFC this year. I think this whole deal with fail for Cardale is going to take hold. And the fans are going to really, really push to see the Browns go after Cardell Jones in the draft next year. As far as the NFC is concerned, let's look at the East. The Philadelphia Eagles really were a scoring machine in the preseason. They averaged over 40 points a game in the preseason. Dallas, on the other hand, played good defense. But the loss of DeMarco Murray to the Eagles, I think, is going to tip the scales and the balance to Philadelphia in that division. I've got the Eagles winning the East. The North, it's about as open and shut as you can get. Green Bay will win this division, but Minnesota is going to be a very tough team. They're going to be on the scale of Buffalo and Houston, as far as I'm concerned this year. And when you look at Minnesota, they've got two players that the Cleveland Browns could have. Trey Williams at the cornerback position, he'd look great in a Browns uniform over Justin Gilbert, and Teddy Bridgewater would look fantastic in a 
Cleveland Browns uniform over Johnny Manziel. But they're in Minnesota. The Viking fans, along with Mike Zimmer, they've got a great coach. I think the Vikings are on the upswing. And they've got Adrian Peterson coming back. So the Green Bay Packers win the North. In the South, it's New Orleans. I've got the Saints winning that division. As long as they've got Drew Brees, I think the Saints are going to win a lot of games. Sean Payton is going to find a way for that team not only to make the playoffs, but to win the Southern Division this year. I don't think Carolina is going to be as good as they were last year, and I really don't expect anything else out of the other teams in the division. So I've got New Orleans winning that division, and Seattle I think is a slam dunk in the West, but Arizona is going to look very, very good in the West, especially now since Carson Palmer is back. But his health is going to be the prime concern of Bruce Arians to see whether or not the Cardinals can take that step and go another step in the playoffs. Seattle wins the West. Now, the two wildcard teams that I have coming out of the NFC, I've got Dallas and Arizona. They are my wildcard teams after the Eagles, Green Bay, New Orleans, and Seattle have won the divisions. As far as the champions of the AFC and the NFC, I just don't think the Patriots have got enough to win the AFC this year. I just don't. They lost almost their entire defensive secondary. Now, I know Belichick is a defensive genius. I know Belichick is a genius as far as that's concerned. Bill Belichick is the premier coach in the NFL today. But I just believe that the Patriots don't have enough. The Bengals, I don't think, are ready to take that next step. They might be. I may be wrong. But I just don't think that they are right now. Denver, Peyton Manning, as many times as he finds ways to win in the regular season, he finds ways to lose in the postseason. So I don't think Denver has got an opportunity to win it. I think here and now, this is Andrew Luck's time. They made it. They beat on the door last year against the Patriots in the AFC Championship game. This year, I think they break the door down. I think the Colts, with the addition of Frank Gore, they've got a running game now. They can take a little pressure off of Andrew Luck. I think the Colts win the AFC. If the Colts don't win it, I'll tell you another team to look out for. I really think Kansas City is a team that you need to look out for in the AFC. But I've got the Colts winning the AFC this year. As far as the NFC is concerned, this is a battle of attrition. You know, as much that is made about the NFC and how it is a tough brand of football, realistically to me, I don't think this is that great a conference. Philadelphia, I'm just not drinking the Kool-Aid yet. I think they've got a good enough team to win the East, but I don't think they've got a good enough team to go to the Super Bowl. Green Bay, Mike McCarthy always finds a way to lose in the postseason. Somehow, someway, the Packers always lose. Aaron Rodgers, yes, may be the premier quarterback in the NFL right now, but Green Bay has lost too much, and their defense is not solid enough to take them into the Super Bowl. New Orleans, not good enough. They just don't have enough talent. That leaves me with Seattle, Dallas, or Arizona. Now, Arizona is an intriguing team to me. So is Dallas if they can find a running back. And don't be surprised if Dallas, sometime during the year, if they find out that their running situation is not what they think it should be, they go out and take a flyer on Ray Rice. That is unless the collusion thing that I was talking about is still in vogue and the NFL won't allow him into the league. But I've got Seattle winning their third straight NFC championship title. 
and they'll go for their second Super Bowl championship this year in three years. So I've got the Colts and Seattle in the Super Bowl. Who's the worst team in the NFC? Boy, that's that one is a tough one. To sit back and really think about it, I'll tell you the team that I think could be the worst team in the NFC is the San Francisco 49ers. Their front office has just proved to be pull one bonehead move right after the other. They have not done the city or the franchise any favors. So I've got the 49ers being the worst team in the NFC. So I've got the Colts in Seattle in the Super Bowl. Should be a very interesting matchup. Andrew Luck and Russell Wilson. You've got all of the talent on Seattle. You've got the coaching situation. You've got the fact that this game is the biggest game. It's the 50th anniversary of the Super Bowl. And I just don't think that Seattle is going to throw the ball into the end zone when they've got it on the two-yard line again. And I think Seattle will have it on the two-yard line several times against the Indianapolis Colts. I've got Seattle winning their second Super Bowl championship in three years, and they defeat the Indianapolis Colts in Super Bowl 50 coming up in the month of February. That's the way I look at it. Patriots, Bengals, Colts, and Denver win the divisions in the AFC and the NFC. Eagles, Green Bay, New Orleans, and Seattle. My two wildcard teams in the AFC, Kansas City and Baltimore. Dallas and Arizona in the NFC. The Colts and Seattle to battle it out in the Super Bowl. And Seattle to win Super Bowl 50. That's my predictions, and that's going to do it for tonight's show. Thanks for joining us once again here on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Don't forget, coming up tomorrow night, we have got Waynedale Golden Bear football for you on UltimateSportsTalk.com. They will be taking on the Triway Titans. Last year's game was memorable. Three and a half, almost four hours of high school football in Apple Creek, Ohio, and the final score was 72-47. to 47. Triway coming out on top of that one in quite a barn burner. Over the years, these teams have faced off against each other 51 times. Waynedale's 125, Triway's 125, and the last game came up as a tie. So you cannot get any more closer in a backyard rivalry than this one between Triway and Waynedale. We'll be on the air with Golden Bear Rewind beginning at 6 o'clock. It'll be the first quarter this week. We're going to bring you the first quarter of this week's game on Golden Bear Rewind. That begins at 6, at 6.30, the PNC Bank pregame show. And at 7 o'clock tomorrow night, the kickoff, Waynedale will be at Triway. And then Monday night, Mark Donahue and I will be back with another Ohio Baseball Weekly show as the Reds and Indians are winding down their season. The Reds just trying to get into the offseason. The Indians trying to make a playoff push. And I'll be back again next week with another Ultimate Sports Talk show, 7 o'clock, with the show next Thursday night here on Ultimate Sports Talk. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show. But most of all, all of our thanks go out to you for listening. Don't forget you can listen to a rebroadcast of tonight's show on iTunes and at the website, ultimatesportstalk.com. Until next Thursday night at 7 o'clock with another Ultimate Sports Talk show, I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good week, everybody. Good night. Good night.